0: I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Thank you, Chad. Uh, We have sort of a guest speaker this morning, and you'll understand in a minute why I say that. Uh, Tom Schrader is our speaker this morning. Tom is the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church, That congregation really just celebrated their 25th anniversary out in Gilbert. Uh, But six years ago, uh, East Valley Bible Church actually became um, the Gilbert congregation of Redemption Church. And so Tom is also one of the two founding pastors of Redemption Church. Uh, I have been introducing Tom in speaking situations for 25 years now. And it just occurred to me very recently Um, something that I should have known for a long, long time. Tom hates to be introduced as a speaker. He he hates the accolades. He hates the list of achievements. He hates the applause. He hates any of this good attention that is directed toward him. So please welcome Tom Schrader.
2: I appreciate that. There you go, thank you. You know, Frank, I've been rethinking that and I'd like to hear some of the accolades. (laughs) And I'd like to hear some of those things. It's good to be with you uh, this morning and to start to begin the wrap-up of what you've been examining, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have Bibles, you can open them or your app, whatever you're using to Matthew chapter 5. I uh, was talking on the phone last night with one of the guys who is teaching at the, uh, one of the other congregations this morning, and he said, where are you guys? Because we follow generally the same sections, but things come up and, and we make some adjustments. And I told him where we were, and he said, that's where I am. And I said, I just read something really interesting that has nothing to do with this lesson. But I thought, wow, that it, I hadn't thought about that before. And this author suggested that the most read book in history is the Bible. And when people read the Bible, they seldom start in the Old Testament. They almost always start in the New Testament. And when they start in the New Testament, they start at the beginning of the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Matthew, which by implication makes Matthew the most read book within the most read book in all of history. So these, are, these should be, even in kind of a casual, non-biblical environment, there should be things in the Gospel of Matthew that strike you as, as being really familiar. And the Sermon on the Mount is filled with phrases that you've studied over the last few weeks that are part of just our discussion. One author writes this. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5-7 through and it is the best known and most extensively studied discourse in the world. It has been the subject of thousands of books and articles, so many that there are now books about the books and volumes about the volumes. When Frank mentions... Uh, the founding of East Valley Bible Church, it was November 3rd, 1991. So it was literally 25 years ago last week. And when we started, one of the things we did that uh, you would assume one would do in the beginning of a venture is establish a mission or a purpose statement. And the purpose statement was to help one another learn God's truths and live biblically changed lives. So the idea was that we would study the word. That doesn't just mean this, though it means this. It means in the RC groups, in the one-offs that you have, in the neighborhood gatherings that you have, uh, in your subsets of the subsets, in small groups of students, in children's. we'd study the word of God so that we might know the God of the word. And that would cause, in our life, biblical life change. And the Sermon on the Mount comes right to that. If you are a student of theology, if you're studying in seminary or even kind of a semi-serious student on your own, you're going to look at the great works that have been written throughout history. In that series of great works, and I don't know how big the volumes, how many there'd have to be before you get to it, but I would sure think within the top half dozen would be Calvin's Institutes. The first sentence of Calvin's Institutes reads this way. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely Of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. Knowing God, knowing ourselves. Knowing how we're to live. If I want to know God and know myself, I need to study his word. That's how he communicates to us. And that equips us for living in this world. And, and I think many authors would argue the most concentrated area of that teaching is here in the Sermon on the Mount. Week one, when Frank began the study, he looked at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And, and chapter Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2, says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach to them. Now, I, during the music today, was sitting down. Uh, I was sitting down because I'm tired, and I don't feel great, and I'm pooped, and I'm trying to save myself. Jesus sat down, not because he was pooped, But it was a position of teaching. It's a formal declaration. If he were to walk around, literally, that would be the informal way of teaching. But he sat down. He he declared what one author calls one of the most powerful, comprehensive, yet compact messages of the foundational truth of the gospel. Jesus sat down. And at the end, in chapter 7, verse 28, we're told that the crowds who heard him were amazed at his words. He quoted no other authors, no ancient rabbis, no revered tradition. He spoke with his own authority. One of the things that matters to me is not just that we understand this, but that we understand it and it becomes transformational in our life. John MacArthur, writing about this section, writes this. Here is an utterly new approach to living. One that results in joy instead of despair, in peace instead of conflict. And it's a peace that the world doesn't understand And cannot have. As Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. He gave us that section that we know as the Beatitudes. And then he charged us to live as salt and light. And in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. He told us to let our light shine before men. In such a way that they may see your good works. And glorify your fathers in heaven. That when I understand, embrace, begin to live out the Sermon on the Mount, the world begins, it almost, I guess, sounds corny, but begins to see Jesus. Again, MacArthur says this is an utterly new approach to life. Dr. Ann Bradley writes this just about heroes. How about heroes in culture? But see how it applies to the Sermon on the Mount. When I think of heroes in God's terms, I think of Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors and for their good and build them up. And these verses in Romans describes heroism. It's helping others in need. It's, it's bearing up. Buttressing up the weaknesses of others and them strengthening us. It's a total new way of living because Jesus is saying, I want, blessed are the poor in spirit, I want those who are spiritually bankrupt to come to me and not try to earn my favor, but receive grace and live in such a way that the world sees the difference in them. I should be able. Tomorrow morning, at school, at work, at the gym, wherever you hang out, I should be able to see that you're a Christian. Not, not because you have on a button that says, "I love Jesus, Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you?" Not that, but by the way you live. The world ought to look at it and say, "I don't, whoops, I don't get it." There's something different about you. You're more concerned with me and the people around me than you are about you. At the beginning of the study, and the reason I'm going back is I haven't had the chance to set this up. And I know over weeks we kind of forget the context. We said there's five important lessons in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one is the necessity of the new birth. You must be born again. You you must have a new birth spiritually. That spiritually, I'm not just kind of wounded. I I don't just need a leg brace. I was sitting out in the lobby watching people walk in today, and I don't know, I saw four or five people that had on a boot or an ankle boot or, or something for the wrist. It's not that you're broken and need to be mended. You're dead, and you need to come to life. The Sermon on the Mount drives us to Jesus as our only hope. We we just went through a a season, a political season, and and there are a whole bunch of people who have put their hopes in Donald Trump or put their hopes in Hillary Clinton. Well, both of those are going to disappoint you. Your only hope is Jesus. Here you go, big connector here. I sound presidential now. This is huge. Okay? (laughs) That your fundamental problem is spiritual. So the solution is spiritual. It's not economic. You don't need more money. Be nice to have it and all that. That's not going to solve that problem you have. It's not more education. I'm pro-education. Go get it. But my fundamental problem is sin. That's what I need. And Jesus is the only hope. He gives us the only pattern for real happiness. Everything else is a temporal, temporary solution. If I want real happiness, real joy, if I go back to that MacArthur quote, that new approach and it's one that results in joy instead of despair and peace instead of conflict. That word peace does not mean the absence of turmoil. That's never going to happen. It's the presence of God in my life. It's the presence of God when the text comes back and says there's a spot on that lung or says it's clear. There's a, there's a presence of God in the midst of if we we were at summer camp right now we'd say look up here okay so here's circumstances of life they go like this and you are not going to change that that's just the way it is and you aren't the exception Jesus doesn't say I'm going to take circumstances and make them like this I'm going to bring you a peace in the midst of all of this I, uh, this last week was doctor appointment week for me. So I had my annual physical on, uh, results on Tuesday. And I'm the best I've been in two years. I and mean, I'm just really good. Well, I'm not really good, but I'm better than I was two years ago. Which makes some of you ask, how bad was he two years ago? Look at it. But on Friday, I had a new rheumatologist and so that's my ongoing battle the lupus and everything and he asked me a question Sandy's sitting there and he's here and he's messing around with me and uh, he's doing all sorts of stuff and he said to this when do you want to die? wow I I don't know well how long do you want to live? I looked at Sandy. I said, "80," and she said, "Oh no, 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 <laughs> oh. <laughs> 67. I'll be 67 this month. Let's go with 67." And I said, "I don't know." And then he he gave me a bunch of answers. But but you know what? He he didn't say, "Do you want to ever die?" I know I'm going to die. He's just saying when. These are the circumstances. He gives us a piece in the middle of that. It's a great scriptural resource for witnessing. It's living the life that, in the only way that can please God. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're studying. So in a, in a huge picture, and, and whether Frank uses these words or not every week, he, he's coming at this. What I want to have at the end of the day is a transformed heart and an informed mind that leads to a radical life. See how that ties together? That was a a semi long kind of introduction, but, but, but see how that ties together? My heart's changed. What do I do now? Well, I inform my mind, and the inevitable, and that's the whole point of today, the inevitable end result of that is your life will radically change. And so Jesus focuses on this and emphasizes this and celebrates this in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last week, David taught chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And I want to pick up there, because that's the context, and drive this home. Make some obvious points to you. If you, you sat down, no Greek, no dictionary, no commentaries, and you just started to make notes, you, you, you could pull this off pretty quickly. It was a second part of it, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there's many who enter through it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there's few that find it. So let me just pull out the obvious and, and put them up in contrast. Jesus says there's two gates, two points of entry, or two roads, one is narrow, one is wide. One is hard, difficult, challenging, the other's easy. One doesn't have a lot of traffic on it, the other has a whole lot of congestion. And this one leads to life, and this leads to destruction. So pull together what you can read for yourself. The narrow, hard, lightly traveled way leads to life. The wide, easy, heavy traffic way it leads to destruction. Now what's interesting, and, and, and didn't get it right away, I don't know if you'd get it out of this by just that, is that both ways are marked heaven. There are not a whole bunch of people Uh, on this road to destruction that's wide and easy and say, I'm going to hell, that's cool. They think it's okay. What Jesus says and what Jesus drives toward here is absolutely narrow and non-negotiable. Now, I know how hard, and maybe for no people in the history of mankind, has this message been more difficult, because we're taught at an early age, how do you want it? You know all that, have it your way. Papa John's is now selling salad. Why? Well, I'm guessing because they're going to sell more pizza if they are, there's always Somebody in the room who doesn't want to eat pizza, who's ruining it for everybody. (laughs) Okay? So they're going to sell, and John's going, we got salads too. What he's trying to do is to say, all you fat guys, order more pizza, and you can get a salad for the healthy eater too. Get what you want, when you want it, the way you want it. When you go in to buy a car or a washing machine or almost anything anymore, you go in, like I love to watch American Pickers and Pawn Stars. I love those shows. And they'll go, well, what do you want to do with that? Pawn it or sell it? I want to sell it. Well, how much do you want for? Uh, $100. And then it'll say on the screen, current $100. I gotta go. I can't. I can't. I can't give you hundred. I'll give you fifty. Uh, I can't take less. This was Grandpa's favorite thing, so I'm I'm willing to sell Grandpa out, but not for fifty bucks. <laughs> so throw Grandpa under the bus. I'm thinking for seventy-five. I'll give you sixty. All right, sixty-two fifty. You got a deal. 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 Okay. Now we come to God. And we're going, God, I'm interested in that heaven. And he says in John 10, 9, he said this, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So now we come to God and say, I'm interested in this heaven thing. And he said, you have to come to Christ. And you say, I'll tell you what I'll do. Here's what I'll give you. And then he comes back and says, no, this is non-negotiable. So as we wrap up this study in the Sermon on the Mount, is what he's saying to you is you need to enter. It's a command. You need to enter. You need to make a choice. It's time to decide. In, in a world, our world, that's broad and easy and many types, and customize your, you can go on a Nike site and customize your shoes. You can customize anything. In the middle of that, the Christian faith is exclusive and narrow and non-negotiable. And if you it, it's closed-minded. And and I want that. I'm, I'm going. I uh, I don't have any trips planned, but my next I, I don't have any vacations planned, but my next trip plan is with Sandy uh, to Pasadena. She works for Fuller Seminary, and she works out of Pasadena. And there's an event over there in May. So I have. I'm I'm going over, and I'm flying. So I came home the other day, and on the counter is my. All my, my stuff, my itinerary. When I fly, one of the things I look for in a pilot is one that's closed-minded. One that likes to land with the wheels down. <laughs> one that goes uh, vector 1428. Nah, I'm going 1312 today. This closed-minded, what we're talking about is truth. Truth. So many of you who became Christians as adults, you had people say to you, hey, I'm glad you found something that what? Works for you. you. No, I didn't find. Yes, I found something that works for me, but it works for everybody because it's the truth. That's what Jesus is saying. And so as an outside guest, I come in with, you know, for me what's comfortable But in some ways, the unenviable task of telling you, people on a meeting for the first time, that if you don't believe this, you are on a road that leads to destruction. It leads to hell eventually, and it leads to hell on earth. And you need to decide. And we make decisions all the time. And don't push this decision off. I go to a restaurant, and one of the items is the plain and simple, and uh, it'll go like this. I don't get it anymore. I'll go, oh, uh, what would you like? I'd like the plain and simple. Oh, now that's eggs and, and toast. There's a meat option. Would you like meat? Well, yeah, look at me. I'm I'm a growing boy. I need protein. Do you want sausage, bacon, or ham? Eh, sausage. Link or patty? Patty. Eggs. How would you like your eggs? What are my choices? Over easy, over hard, over medium? Poached, scrambled, fried? Oh, poached. Bread. English muffin, wheat. Sour? I said, I got the plain and simple, right? That's what I ordered. The plan was plain and simple. I'm exhausted. I'm working up an appetite. Bring me two of these things. I don't know what to do. We live and make decisions all the time, and we're used to those choices. And he says, You got one choice that's right. You got two choices, but only one's right. And this is, and this was my. Kind of big takeaway personally in studying this week is that this is not just for salvation eternal, but it's for daily living. That that the way to enter into a relationship with God is very, very, very narrow. The way to live a life for God, while it has all sorts of choices, is still very narrow. If I want a life that's productive, peaceful, joyful, then I need to make choices that are aligned with God's will. And when I don't, I'll pay a price for that. After making all of this, in verse 15, if you have your Bibles open, Jesus says this, Beware. I think of that big flashing sign. Beware. Be on the lookout. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but they're inwardly ravenous wolves. This culture that Jesus is teaching to would see the wolves as terrible predators. Vicious predators. And and so when you saw them, there would be all sorts of warning, flashing signs. You need to be especially aware when it comes to these predators that Jesus is talking about because they're wolves, but they're dressed like sheep. They're the ones who are not out there, they're in here. Now, look at this section of Scripture. If you circle in your Bible, verse 16, circle the phrase, you know them. And then down verse 20, you know them. I circle them and then draw a line so that when my eye sees that on the page, I connect these. Jesus is saying, there are false teachers who are in the churches. And you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by how they live. You'll know them by what they're all about. There's a little book. If somebody ever challenges you, I challenge you this week, read a book of the Bible. Here's a tip for you. Pick Jude. Okay? We've got a quote here from Jude. And in it, we put Jude chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, but there's only one chapter in Jude. So if you got to read a book, here's an easy way to get it done. Mission accomplished. And Jude said this, I want to talk to you and write to you about our common salvation, life together. But I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You're in a battle. You're in a war. Now, if you checked my mail and my email, you would know we're in a battle. But you would think that the battle was the Republicans or the Democrats or the ACLU or Planned Parenthood or whatever it was. And and those are all organizations, all of them you deal with. But that's not what Jude's talking about. See what he says? For there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed long ago. The battle's not out there. The battle's in here. The battle are men and women with pulpits. In churches. In Bible studies. In small groups. That if it were possible, they'd lead you astray. And there's two big buckets. They pervert grace. They take grace and say, you're saved by grace, that's true, so live like any way you want. And they deny Christ. They change Christ. They edit the gospel. Many of the false teachers that I see are pretty good Bible teachers. But when it comes to teaching broad way and narrow way, they edit. So... So, here you go. Is God a God of love? Okay, yeah, That's not a hard question, I don't think. I, you're nervous right now. You don't want to say it, do you? You're afraid you're going to sound really stupid. Part of my my physical test every year is a mental capacity test. And the first question on the test is, what year is it? And, and I said, you know, I don't know. 2016. I mean, I find myself panicked by an easy question. Okay, this is an easy question. This isn't going to work if you don't help me. Yeah. Is God a God of love? Yes. Yeah. So they'll talk about God's a God of love, but all they do is talk about his love. If he's a God of love, he's also a God of hate. I can talk about Frank Switzer, and I can tell you, and and Frank Is an amazing, wonderful pastor. He he he's a good Bible teacher. He is a great pastor. But that's not all that he is. If if you just know Frank as a pastor, you know that element. You don't know all of Frank. I mean, you need he's an average husband, (laughs) and and um, you know, and kind of remembers his kids' names. (laughs) <laughs> and, and he's okay. But but no, you get the point. He's a husband and a father and, a, and an athlete and a, and a fan and, a, and all of these things. So these false teachers, you don't go, oh, wow, they're teaching God as love. That's wrong. No, he's love, but they're not teaching the other side of that. You'll know by their fruit. You'll know by the character. You'll know by the way they live. You'll know by how they handle and conduct You, and there seems to be an implication here that they'll be working you for your dough. I'm watching TV one day, and there's one of these TV pastors, and here's what he said. I need a new jet. I'm not making this up. I'm not bringing, he said, I need a new jet. I've got a jet that that goes from coast to coast, but God's called me to preach the gospel in Asia and Australia, and my jet cannot make that. I need a new jet. Now, you would have thought in the staff meeting, somebody might said, well, you know what? Qantas goes to Australia. <laughs> Singapore Airlines goes to Asia. See, I got to respond, uh, really? Uh-uh. He said, watch out for these guys. Now he even ups the ante more, more in verse 21 where he says, Not everyone who says on that day, that judgment day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. I was talking last night to Tyler. And I know Tyler teaches some here, so you might be familiar with him. And he's teaching today in Gilbert. And he said, What are you teaching? And I told him. The passage, and he said, I, "I know we're saved by grace through faith, but this passage really talks a lot about what we're supposed to be doing." I hope you're not somebody who said, "I've got my salvation, therefore I'm set." No, that way stays narrow and hard and demanding. And and I find I find these. Verse 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. I find it scary. There are going to be people to judgment who are saying, Lord, Lord. And he's going to go, mm, I don't think so. And they're going to go, wait, listen to this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name perform miracles? And he will say, Depart. From me, I never knew you. They're gonna go. Hey, we were doing a bunch of religious stuff. We were at Arcadia on Sunday. We were in an RC group. But my heart, and that's the the to me the core of the Sermon on the Mount is the issue of the heart. And the section, I guess it's in chapter. I don't need to guess. I gotta care enough to look in in chapter 5 where he says you have heard but I say to you you have heard but I say to you he, he said all along the issue for right relationship with God is not my behavior I get into that relationship by declaring my spiritual poverty and my heart is changed It's a transformed heart and an informed mind, and it's a radical life. James Boyce writes this. One of the worst things that can be taught in religion is that all roads eventually lead to heaven. It is not true, of course, which is bad enough in itself, for all the lies are harmful But in addition to being false, the idea that all ways are equally good is damnable, since the one who follows any other way than the one laid out by Jesus Christ will perish in the life to come. This is not a discussion question. This is not your input. I was invited uh, into a class at ASU recently, uh, a leadership class, and, and I was brought in as uh, somebody to talk about leadership, which I find interesting. And so much of the class was discussion-oriented. Now, how do you see that? How does that play out? Do you think that's really necessary? Jesus is not trying to start something for you to discuss and then go, oh wow, that's interesting. Here's my spin on it. He's given you the spin. It's this way or nothing. You can choose another path, you're free to do that. But the end game of that is ultimately hell and hell on earth. See that? Counterculture? Counterintuitive? I don't want I don't want anybody to. don't want anybody to tell me what to do my friend Larry Wright used to always love the illustration of taking a ride out in the country roads up around Payson and you'd come and there'd be this turn in the road and there'd be this beautiful yellow sign with this turn in it and it was like they just hung the sign and there'd be one that would say you know slippery when wet beautiful sign And then there'd be one that said, no shooting. And it'd be full of bullet holes. (laughs) You're not not going to tell me I can't shoot. Jesus comes along and says, here you go. Now they get this, then I'm done. Get this. For your own good, choose this narrow, hard way. Because it's the only way that leads to eternal life. Now there's a bow to be put on this. So if this were a video, we would freeze frame it right there and say, to be continued next week. So Frank will pick up, or whoever's teaching next week will pick up on that. One of the amazing ways that we respond every week to this gospel is through communion. It's a time when God's people come together, and we take that bread and the cup, the wine or the juice, and we eat and drink, remembering jesus death so if you know christ as your lord and savior we invite you to join us at one of the stations up here front or in the back of the church again for those of you who know christ if you're here and you go that was kind of interesting i don't really buy it and i don't really get it i came with a friend because they promised to buy me lunch okay well the lunch is not this Okay? This is for those of us who know Christ in a personal way. So we'd say to you, not to make you feel uncomfortable, but to say, don't participate. You'd be a hypocrite. But to those of us that know Christ, this is a really special moment. Let me pray and then invite you to come. Father, thank you for the truth of this. Thank you for your son Jesus. For the narrow way that it leads to life. God, I pray that you would pull all of us onto that narrow, hard way. We pray that to you in Christ's name. Amen.